Part 8 of The Boy with the White Hair Written and performed by Nick Thurston From Oathguard, the knights rode north toward the highlands, passing through wood-shrouded Enothen, and taking the straight road through the great, slumbering forest of the Galanoth. When they reached Jalhelm, perched on a bald hilltop at the forest's northern edge, they paused. From the slopes of that lonesome town, they could see far out into the open lands that lay between them and the mountains. The sky over the distant peaks had turned a dreadful shade of blue-black. A storm was brewing. The men gathered on the palisade walkway to watch its progress. As they looked on throughout the afternoon, the storm front crawled down from the crags and strode towards them across the taiga like an angry gray titan. You must wait here, said the thin-faced headman of Jalhelm, who stood beside Eglos on the wooden rampart. To ride into such a storm. He looked Eglos in the eye and shook his head. His meaning was clear. Would that we could stay warm in your halls and let it pass us, said Eglos. But that is no ordinary squall. The storm might as well be the monster's breath. I do not believe it will lift until we have done what we set out to do. If we do not ride now, it will only get worse. The headman persisted. A day or two waiting for the worst of it to pass would not change the outcome. That day or two would soon turn into a week, said Eglos. And every hour that passes takes lives with it. The headman gave a curt nod and turned to survey his town. The grimace of pain on his weathered face told Eglos that he knew well the tax this awful winter had demanded. Eglos let his own gaze fall from the battlements. Too few streamers of smoke rose from the snow-padded cottages below, and too faint was the scent of the cook fires. No, said Eglas. We ride at dawn tomorrow. The next day, the headman met them at the gate of the palisade. Behind him was an old woman in a bone-colored shawl. Her eyes were clouded white, and her hair was almost blue with age. She stood bent toward the wind like a withered tree, her brown skin creased and folded like old leather. In her arms were a number of garments. Do you know what these are, son of Sir Sidramar? said the headman, lifting one of the garments and passing it to Eglos. It was a hooded tunic made of reindeer skin, with a colorful pattern embroidered about the neck and down the arms. Eglos shook his head. They are Yoki, said the headman. Each of these patterns is an enchantment against wet and wind, 
the two fiercest hounds in Cold's kennel. They are a craft brought down to us from the Valimar, our most ancient ancestors, those whom we call the First Folk. There are few alive today who can still do it. Grandmother Gakti here is one, and it was she who wove the enchantments on the garment you now hold. Eglas slipped the yoki over his head. It fit him loosely, over the rest of his winter gear. No sooner had he put it on than he felt the bite of the wind diminish, as if an invisible shield now sheltered him from its cutting edge. He ran his fingers in wonder along the repeating pattern of blue and red diamonds and crosses that ran down the yoki's sleeve. They seemed to hum beneath his fingertips. This is a gift for a king, said Eglas. They are the greatest treasure we have to give, said the headman. The old woman walked down the line of knights, passing each a similar garment. Expressions of wonder and disbelief spread as each man donned his enchanted tunic and felt the cold drop away. How can we thank you for them? said Eglas. The headman motioned to the silent streets of Yalhelm, where only snowbanks had gathered to see the men ride off. Succeed, he said. If you do not, none shall remain to make more. With a sharp nod, Eglas swung onto Dorodrun's saddle, and the company wound its way out the gates and down from the hilltop town. They were headed west. As the host crossed the plain, they passed herds of ox-like hygar and caribou, long-antlered northern elk, and bellowing taubingorns that plowed the snow from side to side with their nose horns. All were marching in the opposite direction, south and east, away from the mountains. The animals went with their heads bowed and their woolly coats frozen stiff with crusts of rime. They paid no attention to the men. Although the party's food supplies were perilously low, they had taken nothing from either Inothen nor from Jalhelm. The knights were too busy to bother with hunting. They had their hands full with the storm. Wave after wave of fresh flakes drove down from the distant chain of the Halidrake, forming drifts of powder so deep that even the Falshas could not walk across them. The Falshas went in the tracks of the Tauvingorns when they could. When they could not, they were forced to plow their own. After three long, unforgiving days, the men reached the mouth of a valley. At first, they were not certain of their bearings. But as the riders brought their Falshas to a halt, the storm abruptly relented. The wind blew itself out, and an eerie quiet fell. 
As the clouds withdrew, leaving bare a leaden sky, the men looked to the west. For the first time in days, they could clearly see their surroundings. The mighty peaks of the Haladrake stood directly before them. No longer distant outlines, the mountains seemed to have grown a hundred times in size. They towered over man and beast, blanketing everything in an acreage of cold shadow. To the east lay the highland plains, an ocean of white as far as the eye could see. There was no escape. An uncomfortable flutter passed through each man's heart as he considered his hubris. Leaving Oathguard, the riders had felt themselves brave and capable. They'd laughed along the road, even as far as Jalhelm. At a distance, the Haladrake had seemed like a thing that could be conquered. But now, standing before the toes of the great western wall of Elgasgond, the men felt small, vulnerable, and utterly insignificant. This was the end of their domain. Ahead lay a fortress of the gods. And into this imponderable vastness they must go. Only one among them had been here before. This was Gotmard. He peered up in silence, long gray hair framing a face that wore a queer expression. Those peaks, that valley, they strummed the chords of his memory. Yet how much had changed since last he stood here. As the mountain's shadow leaned eastward, the men busied themselves with finding shelter. Down on the flatlands, there was little in the way of cover. The winter seemed to have swept the place clean. However, at the base of the valley, an iced-over stream etched its way out across the barren landscape, and beside it were a series of strangely shaped hillocks. Eglos's keen eye was drawn to them. On closer inspection, these hillocks were revealed to be the bodies of taiga mammoths. They had been covered by drifts three fathoms deep. That night, the knights made camp in the lee of the mammoth hills. Each man made do as best he could, digging a cave from the snow. During this chore, the yokis demonstrated their value in a new way. As the men worked, they found that their sweat evaporated from their bodies far more rapidly than usual. Even after hours of hard shoveling, they remained dry beneath their heavy winter garments. This did a great deal to keep them warm. A pitiful grove of standing dead spruce trees was cut down to make a long fire in the center of camp. Provac used his axe to cleave chunks of mammoth meat from the massive bulk of frozen flesh and these were roasted over the open flame. But the men ate cheerlessly. The firewood soon ran out, and none could be found to replace it. As the embers faltered, each man made his way to his separate lodging. 
They stole glances over their shoulders as they went. For the valley above camp, which they must climb in the morning, seemed a thing of malevolent animus, as if it would sneak towards them if not observed. Steep and rock-walled, it angled upward into a throat of troubling shadow. No one slept well. The temperature dropped precipitously during the night. The fresh snowpack consolidated so that in the morning the men had to break sheets of solid ice off of all their gear to get it free. And as the riders lined up in the pre-dawn gloom, clapping their hands against the cold, they found that one of their number was missing. They began a search. At the northern edge of camp, a dull brown falsha was found off on its own, pawing at the snow. Gotmard went to see what was the matter. He returned, leading the falsha by the reins. It was Faustich, said the older man, coughing a shimmering cloud into the dry air. He was in too much haste to bed down last night. As Gotmard passed the reins to another rider, he shook his head. His cave collapsed. There was nothing that could be done. Young Fostich's body would be left until the thaw, if that ever came. The party had now seen its first casualty. That it had happened here, at the foot of the mountains, seemed an ill omen, and the men muttered darkly amongst themselves. Eglas tried to ignore them. He ran his right hand down diagonally before his chest to sign the pole of Malagorn, and turned Doradrun's head to the west. It was not yet fully light as the group left camp to ascend the valley. All knew that the dangers of alpine terrain increased as the day went on, and their hope was to reach Noost by that afternoon. They halted at the bottom of the slope to assess the climb. There were avalanches to be worried about, and rockfall, to say nothing of the kundu itself. As the men peered up at the valley, with its walls of banded black stone, a murmur of thunder sounded in the distance. Clouds had begun to collect about the edges of the sky, Yet the air remained perfectly still. It was as if the oath guarders were being given a final warning. Come no further. But as the sun crept over the eastern horizon, casting the mountains in rosy alpenglow, the men set off up the valley. The silence was overwhelming. Only the crunch of hooves and the sigh of breath disturbed it. The party went in single file, working their way methodically up the slope, the falshas treading as carefully as mountain goats. After two hours, they had made it halfway. A feather of hope began to rise in their chests. The end was now in sight. Had they overestimated the danger? Had their fear played tricks on them? But mountains... Make no idle threats. 
With a tremendous boom and a searing flash of white, the storm broke itself over the knees of the mountain. Clouds of flakes billowed down. Wind ripped across the slope like an icy rasp. The men clung to their saddles as if to life itself, for suddenly their situation seemed very dire indeed. The Yokis spared them from the worst of the blow. The wind sliced around the men's shoulders, making a whistling sound. Their mounts were not so lucky. Yet the marvelous Falshas pressed on, following in Doradrun's footsteps as best they could. As the party neared the top, the valley began to narrow, and to steepen even more until it became a sort of chute. This was the moment of truth. Although they could no longer see the bottom, they all knew that a fall here meant death. Walking the tightrope of fate, Eglos led the men up and out, cutting back and forth across the near-vertical slope until at last they overcame it and crested the rise. They had arrived at the pass. But now they faced a new challenge. The walls of stone, which had protected them during the climb up the valley, fell away. Now the storm surrounded them entirely. Eglos brought Doradrun to a stop and squinted. Stinging crystals flew into his eyes. Wind screamed in from the white wilderness that loomed on every side. Neither sky nor land could be distinguished one from the other. All had become a single confusion of gray half-light and blowing snow. As he stood there, trying to gain his bearings, a dark shape swayed towards him out of the monotonous pall. Where are we going? came Hrovak's voice, raised above the roar. If we don't get out of this soon... Eglas hesitated. Even through his yoki, he felt the intensity of the wind. Doradrun bent his head in resignation as it raked his flanks. We're close, said Eglas. I feel it. Close to what? Noosed? Whatever Hrovak said next was lost beneath a howling gust. When it blew itself out, Hrovak was still talking. A half dozen empty cabins? How are we going to find it in this? Eglos furrowed his brow. He knew the little village of Noost was above the pass, but where exactly he couldn't say. Freerla's map was highly detailed, but without being able to see any of the waypoints it illustrated, he had to rely on his intuition alone. And now he could barely focus enough to stay in the saddle, let alone follow the faint inner voice he counted upon for ultimate direction. We can still go back, said Hrovak. The trail is fresh. Go back? Now, after they'd already gotten so far? 
Eglos strained, trying to concentrate. He needed silence. Silence of the mind. Silence of the heart. Silence to listen. But the blizzard overpowered everything. Well, said Hrovak. Just... Eglos faltered. Just a little further. In what direction? said Hrovak. Come on, lad. It's madness to continue in this. We've got to admit when we're beat, or we're all going to die up here. Eglos turned. All he could see of the rest of the knights were a couple of grayish blotches. Maybe Hrovak was right. Maybe this was madness. But the whole quest was madness. To go up against a child of the gods? Of course that was mad. And it would take a certain amount of madness to succeed where all the rest had failed. Eglos had never known defeat before. Dorodrun wickered. Eglos looked down. The Falsha had his head turned sidelong against the wind, his eyes half-closed. Eglos gritted his teeth. Even his mount was ready to quit. If he had to, he could go on without any of the other men. But without his Falsha? That was a bond he wasn't willing to break. Damn it all, said Eglos, shaking his head in frustration. All right, we'll go back. That's wisdom, said Rovak. You'll be glad you heeded my advice this time. Rovak's bulky silhouette shifted, and Eglos heard him booming out the order to turn back to the men. Eglos felt his blood begin to boil. He urged Doradrun's head around with the reins, but the Falsha wouldn't turn. He tugged the reins harder. This time, Doradrun jerked against them, pulling his head forward and unbalancing Eglos in the saddle. Doradrun pulled forcefully. Finally, Eglos understood. The Falsha wasn't guarding his head against the wind. He was signaling. Leaning forward, Eglos followed Doradrun's gaze. There, in what had appeared to be perfect oblivion, a dim outline was barely visible. Peaked and brownish, it appeared and reappeared behind clouds of snow. A house? There! Eglos shouted, and drove his heels into Doradrun's flanks. The Falsha thrust forward. The outline became clearer and clearer until Eglos found himself standing before the shingled roof of a building. The door was buried to the lintel beneath the drifts, but a painted white swan was visible above it, along with a single word written in Elgus gear. Suthi. They had found Noost's Inn. Immediately, the men set about digging down to the snowbound door. When they reached it, they broke it open and tumbled inside. They found within a scene of carnage. The corpses of villagers lay strewn all throughout the inn, frozen in their final poses. They had not died peacefully. The Kundu had been here.
The only body not torn by claw and fang was that of an old, toothless woman, which sat blue and laughing in a chair by the door. A search of the inn revealed a gaping hole in the wall of one room, through which the monster must have made its entrance. A further search of the village revealed that neither food nor firewood were present. It became clear what had happened. The people of Noost had gathered at the Suthi to make their last stand against cold and starvation. The beast, in its cruelty, had waited until they were on death's doorstep before delivering them across the threshold. As Eglos was speaking the prayer of the fallen and blessing the frozen remains under the sign of Malagorn's pole, a deep voice came from behind him. We are missing Ephia. Eglos turned to see Hrovak. Water dripped from his steel-shot beard, where the ice was melting, only to be replaced by the fog of his breath. Norvai and Thunin also. Gotmard, gaunt and grim-faced, stood off to one side. He looked like a specter. The rest of the men were arranged behind them. All of them were looking at Eglas. Counting young Faustish down on the plains, that's four men we've led into Winter's mouth and let her eat. Hrovak spat. <coughs> His spittle froze instantly into a chip of ice that bounced off the floorboards. We knew there would be losses, Eglas said. Aye, said Hrovak, nodding. He motioned to the knights behind him. But these men came to fight a monster, to die in battle if need be, not to give up their lives to the cold. Eglas, seeing where Hrovak was headed, began to feel angry. Did you not stand with us in Oathguard Hall when Dunsinir the Woven cast his spell? said Eglas. Did you not hear his words, spoken from within the Valsunga? This monster was born of Winter's own womb. It suckled at her breast. It is the cold. To die up here, surrounded by the press of snow, is to die in battle with it. The frowns and murmurs of the men told Eglas that his answer did not satisfy them. We agreed to follow you, said Hrovak, because you claimed to be able to bring us to the creature's lair. Can you tell us where it is? Eglos clenched his jaw, but could not answer. It is said that you hear some voice in your mind heart that gives you direction, continued Hrovak. Is this an inheritance from your Vilgard father? Or is it something else? The bold voice of youth, perhaps, that tempts you on into a wilderness from which none can possibly return. Eglas surveyed the faces of the knights. He saw fear, frustration, and indecision. None of you need follow me farther, said Eglas. In truth, I cannot say for certain which direction lies the Kundu's lair. 
nor can I promise that any will return who leave here in search of it. But so it was the moment we set foot from Oathguard. And now we have reached the end of the map. Beyond this, the only guides we can rely on are our instincts. Come, said Hrovak, laying a hand on Eglos's shoulder. I've collected a few more years than you. Listen to the wisdom they've won for me. Let us go down. We can reach Jalhelm again before our supplies give out. There, we can wait until this storm has cleared and return with greater chance of success. A murmur of approval passed among the men. Hrovak's words were a clear offering. The master of the guard was giving them the opportunity to abandon their quest without forfeiting their honor. Eglos felt betrayed. His anger rose, and he stepped back, shrugging Rovak's hand from his shoulder. You gave me your wise counsel once before, Rovak. Do you remember? You told me to ride around the countryside and indulge in the hospitality of its people. You told me to taste its women and collect its silver and then go back to Sir Sidramar without risking my life and limbs. What sort of wisdom did that advice hold? Hrovak's expression soured. Even in the dim light of the inn, Eglos saw a flicker of anger in the big man's narrowed eyes. The knights shifted uncomfortably behind him. I ignored you then, said Eglos, and I am going to ignore you now. There is no shame in wanting to live, said Hrovak, turning his body to address the others. It is what we do while we are alive that matters, said Eglos, addressing them himself. How do you want to be remembered? None of us are going to live until the Halinoct. And some of us, said Hrovak quietly, are going to die before meeting their own children. That was the end of it. Eglos stood there stonily, unwilling to continue what felt to him like a pointless argument. Obviously, Hrovak had made up his mind. And as one by one the others sifted out of the inn, it was clear that they had done so as well. Only Gotmard remained behind. He didn't say anything, only watched as the rest of the men left and nodded to a few of them that he knew best. When all the other knights had gone, Hrovak made his way to the door. He glanced at Gotmard as if to make a final offer, but Gotmard shook his head and stayed where he was. Hrovak turned to Eglas. The hand of fate has clearly been raised against you, said Hrovak, waving to the now empty inn. Eglas shrugged and smiled a bitter smile. Then I shall go and cut it off.